After years of work and multiple studies, the Defense Department is out with a new cohesive plan to address brain health of service members. The strategy will bring together multiple concepts to prevent and treat traumatic brain injuries and possibly change how the military approaches head injuries. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni joins me with more. And Scott, let's start with brain health. What exactly are they referring to? PTSD or traumatic brain injury or generally keeping people fit in the mental sense? Well, it really does run the gamut of a lot of different things. But one of the things that they're mostly focusing on here is traumatic brain injuries. This is something that we saw happen a lot during the global war on terror when there were IEDs that were really these concussive sort of hits that were hurting a lot of service members and leaving them really with memory problems or much worse than that later on down the road. So, you know, they've worked with organizations like the NFL and other organizations that are focused on how degenerative these sort of concussive hits can be to the brain. We've seen things like CTE pop up and also how much concussions can really hurt people in the long run, especially if they're getting numerous concussions or subconcussive hits through things like even firing heavy weapons or jumping from helicopters, which really just rattle the brain after you have some sort of jolt. All right. So they have been aware of this problem for a long time. And unlike the NFL, which has a players association, which is keeping the NFL's feet to the fire, a little different for military service members. What is different about this plan compared to the way they've been dealing with this until now? But what's really interesting about this is that brain health in previous times was considered a one-off sort of thing. So someone would get a concussion, they would go to the doctor, the doctor would say you have a concussion and, you know, take these precautions and then Once you're healed, you never think about it again. But this looks at it as a long-term sort of issue. And what they're hoping to do is really keep a log of brain health so that people understand how their brains have been affected by things like blast exposures or other impacts that they've had. What this will do is allow them to track over time maybe someone's risk of a larger brain gen- in brain injury because of these smaller ones. What they found is that these brain injuries after time and after multiple injuries tend to get worse and tend to affect the memory and other ish- other parts of the brain, which is what the Defense Department is trying to keep people from, from doing. So it, let's say you're a parachuter or something like that. Well, you need to log these things, much like an astronaut logs their time in space because of radiation exposure to ensure that they're not hurting their brains much more than than what was expected. Right. You have to count those concussions and hopefully avoid subsequent ones, even if you have a first one. And does this plan, how comprehensive is it? That is to say, there are protective measures and procedures that can happen at the point where there is the potential, such as in firing ranges or the types of helmets or protective gear, ear protection. Then there's the medical aspect. Once the unfortunate event has happened, which might be beyond someone's control in battle, does it cover both ends of the whole chain of events leading to traumatic brain injury? It's quite comprehensive. It doesn't necessarily go into things like equipment. This is a much more broad and high-level type of policy, but it does hinge on five lines of effort, and they really go from things like prevention all the way to research and making sure that later on down the road, people's brains are protected more as we learn more about these sorts of issues. One of the things that it does is creates a cognitive baseline. So when someone comes into the military, they do an assessment to see what their brain health is at that moment. 
so that they can see how things degenerate or don't degenerate over time and can identify a decrease in cognitive performance so they can better understand and and diagnose these TBIs when they do happen. One of the other things that they're working on is also restoration treatments to help build people back after they do have these sorts of issues. They're going to be evaluating service members' health during training, establishing surveillance systems, developing standards for acceptable exposure. And then part of this is also identifying these sorts of issues. They're going to be encouraging self-evaluation and people who want to come and self-report about these TBIs. In the past, you know, there has been this culture of suck it up and, and walk it off and they're trying to tell to trying to tell service members that is not the way that they should approach brain health because these are such serious issues and then finally you know later on down the road on these later on kind of issues they're they're hoping to work with the VA and also with other academic institutions and the NFL to make sure that brain health is something that they're putting money into for research and to ensure that they have the right kind of equipment and protection for future service members. We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Massioni, and there's definitely a time element to this because you can be injured in battle or in a training situation, and it's a manifest problem right here and now. But then there's also the issue of cognitive, mental, or motor mechanical issues that may come up years later that you would have to trace back to that. So it sounds like they're going to look at people not just in the moment of injury, but over time as they transition to VA and issues could pop up as veterans age. That's exactly right. And they're they're hoping to make this an interagency thing so that they can do that and follow it along. And, you know, that doesn't mean that they're going, just because this policy is out, it doesn't mean they're going to stop doing these studies that they've had in the past too. I think one of the more interesting things that we've heard about from this is that the National Institutes of Health did a study in 2018 that found that Army policies that encourage TBI self-reporting dramatically increased the number of TBIs that were identified. We're talking about you know 250% more. So the more that these people can actually come up and say, I may have a cognitive issue right now, the better that they can identify and understand these later on down the road. And so now these new this new doctrine will translate into policy and procedures, so it's too early to tell whether this will have any appreciable improvement? To some degree, what we've seen is that the Defense Department has sort of brought this out in some areas, smaller areas, and tried to implement this in other ways, but they haven't had a fully cohesive plan until right now. But some of the military services have worked on this in the past. One of the things that we can look to is the January 2020 attack on An al-Assad Air Base in Iraq. DOD established a policy at that moment that anyone within 50 meters of a blast must be self-evaluated. And then after that, they really encouraged people to keep coming in if they had issues like headaches, dizziness, memory problems, balance problems, and those sorts of things. And we really, they found that there were hundreds of people that could have been affected by that much more than maybe they thought that that would have been in the past because these people were coming forward and saying, well, you know, I did have a bit of a headache the other day. And the Defense Department is being much more, I don't want to say lenient, but much more accepting of people that come in and and say, you know, I just have a headache compared to the past when they may have just said, like, like I was saying before, walk it off and, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. And this new strategy is effective immediately? It's effective immediately and then we'll see 
hopefully in the future, what they're going to be doing with this in terms of appropriations and other money decisions. We'll see in the future how they're going to be working on it. But the most important parts right now are establishing this cognitive baseline and then also encouraging self-reporting and making sure that people have this log of you know, what their cognitive incidents are. Federal News Network, Scott Mossioni, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. 
But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? 
you're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.